who does this or that. But we've come to a section where Jesus is going to start looking at the Old Testament, and he's going to say this phrase, you have heard that it was said to the ancients. Now, what he's talking about are the, the laws and commandments, 613 of them, in the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said this to the ancient people of those days. And so he's taking the teaching of the, of the first five books of the Bible, and he's saying, you've heard this stuff, but I want to tell you what the truth is about it. Jesus is the one who said that this crowd uh, was listening to a sermon where they were going to learn the truth of the Word of God. And he's talking about what they had been hearing from their scribes and their Pharisees and the, the uh, Sadducees even that have been teaching them what the Old Testament law says. So he's saying, you have heard it said that ancients heard this, like, you shall not kill. Then he's going to be talking about the stuff that is not... being taught, that should be taught, and it's uh, something that Jesus wants to bring to our attention. What the crowd is going to find out is that according to Jesus, they didn't receive the complete teaching from their scribes and their Pharisees and their Sadducees. They didn't receive the complete teaching of the Word of God. Uh, they, they haven't heard the whole story. There is much that is missing in the teachings of their religious leaders. Jesus will be showing that they don't understand the true meaning of and the intent of the word of God that he spoke in the Old Testament. In other words, yeah, you've been taught this all your life. Your scribes and your Pharisees have memorized parts of the Bible. They know what the Bible says and they're teaching you, but they're not telling you everything you need to know. Now that's quite a statement considering that the one who is correcting the religious teachers of his day has never been to a rabbinical school. He never allied himself like Paul did with some great theologian like Gamaliel. He never spent any time studying the word of God that way. There was no seminary where he could go and learn the word of God and uh, never studied under any great theologian of his day. I'm talking about Jesus. But then they didn't know, or most of them didn't know, that Jesus did not need a teacher, he did not need a diploma or a certificate. The one who was teaching them that day with the Sermon on the Mount is the one who wrote the words of the text. Imagine that. How would you like to be there that day? Jesus is preaching his Sermon on the Mount. This is the guy who wrote the book. This is the guy that penned the words through his, his authors in the Old Testament, through Moses primarily in the law. He is the one that told Moses what to write. If anybody knows what the Word of God says, it's the guy who wrote it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus there is identified uh, metaphorically as the one who is the Word of God, and he wrote it. He moved people to write that Word. He knows what the Word of God says. No man could possibly impact hearers of the Word of God more than Jesus uh, because he is God, and everybody was impacted by his teaching. It says in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished these words, now that's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're not there yet, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not like their teachers, not like their scribes. He was teaching as one who had a authority. Why? Because he's God and he wrote it. That's why. 
And so everything is different when Jesus teaches. No one has ever been so in touch with the heart of God in the writings of the scripture than Jesus Christ, who is God. He wrote it, and he should know what it means, and he does. So understand this. This is the definitive teaching of God on these areas that Jesus chose to teach on. We should listen and do what Jesus says when he says it. And when he says things like this, but I say unto you, but I say unto you. You know why Jesus had to say that? Because we are always trying to find a way to get around the word of God. We're always trying to find a way to say, well, I'm not violating the word of God today because I didn't do such and such. I didn't cross this line, and that's where God drew the line, and I'm, I'm on the other side of that. And Jesus is saying, there's more to the law than just the letter of the law. And that's what he's going to teach us this morning. Matthew 5, 21 down through 26 says this. You have heard that the ancients were told. So he's talking about the people that read the words of Moses in the beginning. You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, we could read that for us today. Therefore, if you're sitting at church getting ready to worship, and there you remember that your brother or sister, we could say, has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother. See, God doesn't want us coming here and pretending like we're in fellowship with, uh, with other people when we're not, and he doesn't want us pretending like we're in fellowship with God when we're not in fellowship with other people. We should be. And then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponents at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge then to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up every last cent. So he's saying, don't even let it go that far. All right, let's look at verses 21 to 22. He's dealing with the issue of murder. All right, murder, if you're following along in your bulletin, murder is forbidden, but know that even anger and degrading others can cause one to be destined for a fiery hell. In other words, what Jesus is saying, you think the line is at murder. I can do whatever I want to this person up until the point of murder, but if I murder them, I'm going to be in big trouble. And if I murder them, I'm going to stand before the court of God. But it's okay if I say, you're a good-for-nothing so-and-so, or you're a, a fool, and make those kind of comments about you. And Jesus said, you're missing what God says. It's not just about the act of taking somebody's life. So in verse 21, it is true that we must not murder, and whoever does murder someone is liable for that crime in court. This is what the ancients were taught right out of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, which we find in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. There's a set uh, in each one of those. Exodus 20.13 says, you shall not murder. You will not murder. The Hebrew word in Exodus passage for murder is the Hebrew word ratzak. The word ratzak has a special meaning. The concern is that this precludes and prohibits things like war, but it doesn't. 
It refers to murder that is premeditated. So we have whole groups of religious people that are conscientious objectors, and they believe that God has forbidden them to have any part of any war, and that's their conviction, and, and they hold to it. They serve in other places in the military. But is that what that text says? Is that what it says? The answer is no. That's not what it says. It says, you shall not ratzak. God considers that things like war and uh, killing in self-defense capital punishment or accidental manslaughter is not premeditated murder. And so therefore, those things, God sent his people to war. Now, if God said, do not kill, and then sends them to war, then God's a hypocrite. But obviously, he doesn't, didn't mean that and doesn't mean that today. What it means is you cannot premeditatedly kill somebody, especially, you know, when you're thinking about doing that, that would be out of anger most of the time. But it does not mean killing in self-defense. It does not mean war that is sanctioned by uh, the nation or God. Uh, obviously, we want to fight in, in righteous wars or capital punishment or accidental manslaughter. But, but you know, uh, it was typical for the religious leaders of the day to do what Jesus said, and that is strain at gnats and swallow camels. Now, what Jesus is saying is, your religious leaders make a big deal out of the little bitty things of the law. Now listen, not that those aren't important. They are, all right? But they make a, a big deal out of the little things and, uh, and, and then focus on those. And then the big things, like a camel, so we have, we have a gnat and we have a big camel. And he says, uh, theologically, uh, those gnats, they just have fits over and they're going to make sure everything's right. But the camels, the murder part of this, they just let it go. And they, they make a, a big deal out of little things and a little deal out of big things. And that isn't what they should be doing. They were pretty sure that murder shouldn't take place. That, that's clear in the text. But they avoided teaching about the crimes of unjust murder and anger and degrading another person unjustly. There's more than one way to kill a person. There's more than one way to murder. And you can murder somebody emotionally. Or you can murder them physically. You can murder somebody spiritually. Or you can murder them physically. It's all murder. And just so you know where Jesus is going with this, these things can lead to court, right? And, and the fires of hell. And what he's talking about is calling somebody a fool or calling somebody an empty head or a, a no good or worthless, whatever it is. And I'm not justified in saying any of that that I am just as guilty of the fires of hell as if I went out and murdered somebody. You have to stop and say, what are you saying, Lord? What does this mean? How can that possibly be? You know, I can understand that you, you may lose your life if you murder somebody, but why is calling somebody an empty head or a fool, why is that such a big deal? And Jesus said uh, in the court in heaven, if you don't know Christ as your Savior and you do that, you can be just as guilty for the fires of hell as if you murder somebody. Now, he's not saying that murder is on the same plane of unrighteousness as calling somebody a fool, but they will both land you in the same place. And so among us, brothers and sisters, that should not be. And here's the deal. Just so you know where Jesus is going, uh, these things lead to court. People who do these things are ones who prove to everyone around them that they aren't believers. God is concerned about our actions way before it comes to murdering somebody. 
That's why we deal with anger right away. That's why we keep short accounts with God and others. That's why we're willing to forgive somebody, even if they don't even ask us for that. Murder is the ultimate act of hatred. I can only think of one thing worse, and that is if you would murder somebody and then eat them. And that's what cannibals do. They not only murder you, they eat you. And uh, that's probably the worst sin of all. What about the stuff that is sinful that leads up to murder, though? What about those things? In verse 22, in the first part of it, we'll call it 22a, if a person is unjustifiably anger, angry with a fellow believer, he will also be guilty before the court, Jesus says. And I'm going to talk a minute uh, when we get there for just a second. I'm going to talk about what is justifiable and what is not justifiable. Because what you're thinking, because you're sharp, is you're saying, wait a minute, God says we shouldn't be angry with these people, we shouldn't call them names, and yet God gets angry with people, so where does that fit in? Is God a hypocrite? The whole issue rests on, is something justifiable before God, or is it not justifiable? The hardest thing about anger is trying to keep yourself from acting on that anger, or letting it lead you down a path of sin. And if you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 4 with me, I want to read a little bit about uh, the murder of Abel by Cain, and that's in Genesis 4, verses 3 to 8. And we'll see him again in the New Testament in just a little bit. And it says in Genesis 4, 3, uh, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the, and the fat portions of them. And Yahweh regard, had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now listen, it doesn't matter that one of them brought first fruits or one of them brought an animal. That didn't matter because you're supposed to bring first fruits. You're supposed to bring animals. That's okay. But one of them had the heart where it was supposed to be and one of them's heart was not where it was supposed to be. And Cain shows where his heart is right away when God has regards as Abel. I accept your sacrifice, Cain. Uh, you know, we have some work to do here, friend. This is not acceptable. Not because of the sacrifice, but because of Cain's heart. And when he showed, when God showed uh, the favor to Abel, Cain got jealous. And that happens to us a lot. If we think that some other Christian has an advantage with God over us, it makes us jealous of them. It makes us jealous that God's paying attention to them and not to us. Well, they're more spiritual, so God's paying attention to them, and they're not paying attention to me. So we get jealous, and Cain got jealous of that enough that, well, you know what happened. He murdered his brother. Then Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? In other words, you can see it all over his face. Yahweh says to Cain, here's his advice, if you do well, See, he didn't say, if you bring a different sacrifice, he said, if you do well, get your heart right, Cain. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at the door. It's personified. There's an ancient Akkadian word for crouching that is a word in Akkadian for demon. It's akin to this Hebrew word. Probably what Moses was saying was, and if you do not do well, an enemy is crouching at the door. A demon is crouching waiting to take uh, advantage of your sin and cause trouble in your life. 
Well, this is what God warned him, and then he didn't listen to God, and he killed his brother anyway. So Cain was guilty of murder. Sometimes we can murder someone in our heart without ever physically doing it. Uh, if God had stopped Cain from actually killing his brother, he'd already murdered him in his heart. He'd already taken care of that. And so the sin starts way before the physical act. Jesus is saying that it is an offense to God's law as well as actual murder. Uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg said this about this particular passage. There is a righteous indignation against sin, and especially with Jesus versus the money changers in the temple. So we can read in Matthew 21, 12 to 17, that when Jesus went to the temple and saw they were selling things in the temple court that they should not have been doing, it angered him. This is a house of prayer. This is not a house uh, where we, we buy and sell and make money. And so Jesus clears the temple, and he was angry when he did it. So God himself uh, has, has been properly wrathful at times. Uh, since it's close here, if you want to look at Matthew 18 and verse 34, this is about God in a parable, and it says, And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. And then the text says, And my heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Forgiveness has to come from the heart. If it comes from the head, it doesn't work. It's not going to be good for us. And then another place is chapter 22 and verse 7, illustrating that God himself has, has had anger. He says, But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Now, these are parables about God and how he's dealing with certain issues with people. So anyway, Dr. Blomberg goes on, but it is unusual for human anger to be free from mixed motives and not to be, in some sense, self-serving. So you can say, I have a right to be angry about this. I have a righteous anger, but the Bible also says, my anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. So you may have a right to be angry. It may you know, really make you upset, like what happened to those children in Texas or what happens around the world with our pastors in India and all that stuff. Yes, but if I act on my anger instead of taking care of it, it's going to lead me to do things I shouldn't do, and then I'm going to be in trouble. And so he's right about this. It, it must not be self-avenging. He goes on to stay, say, restraining one's wrath against a fellow believer is a virtue still desperately needed today. These verses offer good advice at, lit at a literal level of legal proceedings, but also in light of verses 21 to 22 where we're at, they obviously refer to primarily the spiritual goal of averting God's wrath on judgment day before it is too late to change your personal destiny. And I don't want you to lose sight about the fact that that's really what we're talking about at the end of the day. At the end of the day, who's going to judge me? At the end of the day, after I die and I go to, to the judgment seat, my mom's not going to be on the throne. My dad's not going to be on the throne. Uh, the elders of the church won't be on the throne. Jesus will be on the throne. And Jesus will judge me. So if Jesus is telling us the right way to do this, why wouldn't we do what he tells us to do so we can avoid the judgment? Jesus now begins to heighten the sense of the offense of murder by the result of each one. In verse 22b, whoever unjustly calls his brother an empty head will be guilty before the Supreme Court. So look at that in verse 22. Um, it says the Supreme Court in the Greek text 
It actually says the Sanhedrin court. All right, that's the highest court in Israel. That's why our translator said uh, the, the high court, all right, the highest court. The word in Greek is Sanhedrin, the highest judicial court in Israel made up of 70 Jewish elders, and it was headed up by the high priest. What he's wanting you to know is it's a big offense, and you'll end up in the highest of courts. Now, you and I wouldn't probably think that that would be too bad to say, you empty head, but Jesus attaches uh, the incident to the high court that they would uh, even deal with such a thing, what might be questionable for the Sanhedrin, but Jesus will deal with it. Jesus thinks it's enough to be in his court. Hmm. Is there any court higher than his? Answer is no. Is there any Supreme Court that is a higher court than Jesus Christ? Obviously no. Although I am glad that they're going to uh, turn some things over on Roe versus Wade. That's wonderful. But it doesn't solve our problem uh, totally. But I'm glad they're doing that. But that court will answer to Jesus too. Our U.S. Supreme Court regularly turns down cases they don't think are worthy of their time or their expertise or, or the, uh, uh, the good of the nation. Jesus won't turn those things down. Do you think that they would take a case where somebody called another person an empty head in the U.S. Supreme Court? Nope, probably not going to happen. But Jesus will take it under consideration one day. And the point is, if your heart isn't right with God and you're saying these things, you could land in hell for even that, that small thing. Sins are not the same in the sense that they all require the same punishment from God. The Old Testament teaches us that. But it doesn't matter if you tell a little lie or murder somebody, they all make you liable for punishment in hell. We can only escape that through faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. In the third part of verse 22, if someone says without cause, you fool, that person will be guilty enough to be cast into hell, uh, and he has proven not to be a genuine believer in God. And that's the whole point. Uh, if we walk around doing those things and we do it flippantly, there's no justification for what we say, then uh, we are guilty before the court of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 17, John deals with this issue, so I want to take time to read it together. 1 John 3, 11 to 17. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. See, the whole point is, if we love each other, then empty head and fool are not things that are going to come out of our mouth. Was not Cain, okay? So um, we're in verse 12. We're talking about that passage in Genesis 4 that we just read. Uh, we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one. You see that? Cain brought his offering. He didn't get accepted, and now the New Testament tells us why. Because Cain was not of God. He was of who? He was of the, the evil one, the evil one. Not just any evil one, but Satan himself. His heart did not belong to God. Can you, can you fathom that? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. We have Seth and some others. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. We haven't gone that far from the garden. God is still fellowshipping with his people, and Cain's heart doesn't belong to God. Cain's heart belongs to the enemy. And so, who was of the evil one and slew his brother... And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because the love of the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
We know, uh, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I don't understand people who say they're Christians and they love Jesus but they would rather die than step foot in a church because they hate the church. They hate the people of the church. How can you say you love Jesus and hate his bride? What's John's answer? Not if you're a Christian, you can't do that. And that's serious stuff. Well... We need to understand that this person is considered a false brother, not a true believer. Thus his punishment. Jesus took one thing that we all know is terrible, like murder, and then he talks about the stuff that we do occasionally and think nothing about it. God thinks about it, though. And God wrote it down. We'll have to answer for that. As Christians, we don't lose our salvation. We certainly will lose reward, though. And by the way, Jesus is trying to tell us true Christians don't act like this. The Greek word for fool here in this context is thought of, thought of as a term of abuse. It is a put-down relating to a lack of intelligence or somebody that we would call a numbskull. You fool, all right? Anybody ever hear another person, another Christian, use any of those words, you empty head or good for nothing, you numbskull, you fool? Please note these following issues because otherwise... We're going to misunderstand everything, and uh, we don't want to do that. If you go to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 17, it says, You fools, you blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple, uh, or the, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? That is Jesus, and he's getting after the uh, religious leaders, and he calls them fools. All right? He's justified in that because he says this is what they're doing. This is what they have, have uh, produced by their works. And so he calls them fools. All right, let's look at another one in Luke chapter 12 and verse 20. In Luke 12, 20, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own all that you have prepared? Talking about the person who wanted to build more, more places to store his grain and stuff like that. And then Romans 1.22. Romans 1.22. Maybe I'm not looking. I'm, yeah, Romans 1.22. Okay. Professing to become wise, they became fools. In the Old Testament, a fool is somebody who doesn't learn from their mistakes. And Jesus always, and God always uses that in the right context. We don't. We don't. We should be very careful about what we call other people. See, justifiable anger is taken care of spiritually. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath and thereby give a room or a place to the devil in your life, a base of operation. 
deal with anger. Anger is an emotion, okay? There's, there's, it's, it's something God created for us. It actually can save your life if you uh, need to run real quick and get away from danger, fight or flight. It has to do with the uh, different things that happen in your body chemically to prepare you for that. But we never hang on to anger. We never live with anger. And because of what the Bible says, we know we shouldn't. If you look at Psalm 37, 8, Psalm number 37, 8. Psalm 37, 8 says this, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. We talked about uh, that the Bible says our anger does not produce the righteousness of God. We may think we have a right to be angry about something uh, because it's evil and wicked. That's okay, but you have to deal with that. You have to forgive people. You have to get rid of it because Ecclesiastes verse uh, chapter 7 verse 9 says, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Well, why not, Solomon? Because it says, for anger resides, it lives, it dwells in the bosom of fools. Hang on to anger, and the Bible thinks you're a fool. Uh, So we deal with it. Now in verses 23 to 26. Not being in fellowship with others means we are not in fellowship with God. That's the whole issue. Here we learn that we are to do our best to maintain fellowship with others. Uh, Romans 12:18 teaches us that as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all people. Be at peace with all men. That's our goal. Here we learn that we are to do our best to maintain our fellowship with others. So in verse 23, it's about the issue of being engaged in worship activities and realizing I have a brother with something against me. All right? Now, if it was you having something against them, then you need to go and ask forgiveness or say you forgive them or whatever uh, that, that may look like. But this is, uh, this is turned around for us. Therefore, if you're presenting an offering, you're worshiping God at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Remember, you know what? So-and-so doesn't like me for this. So-and-so was uh, bad-mouthing me for this the other day. They have something against me, all right? So this is going to be an issue of have I done my best uh, to make things right with the person that has something against me? Have I done my best? This does not say that just because you go and try to make it right that they're going to give in to that and they're going to say, okay, I forgive you and uh, it's okay now, I've forgiven you. There's no guarantee of that. You cannot change another person's heart. You can only change your own. And so I I can't worry about the other person's heart. What I have to worry about is, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? So some people refuse to forgive. They refuse to reconcile. But the issue for us is, did you try? Did you try? Did you make an effort? Uh, You leave your your gift before God, and you go and you ask that person, hey, I'd like to get this right with you. Would you forgive me? And they say, no, I'll never forgive you. Well, would would you just work to where we could be friends again? No, I don't ever want to be your friend again. I I can't change what the person's going to say. But I can stand before God and say, God, in my heart of hearts, I tried. I did my best. And that person wouldn't, wouldn't change. They wouldn't forgive me. Then I'm done. I've done what I'm supposed to do. If I had to wait for that person to forgive me, I might be dead before I ever go back to the altar with my gift. It's not saying that. But if I can reconcile with a person who is willing, maybe even they would admit their contribution to the problem It ends up being something in the Bible that is so great, we call it fellowship. 
and we renewed fellowship. God doesn't want people coming to worship that have other people in the congregation that they just hate. They can't stand. They would never even sit on the same side of the church as they do. They would never run into them going out of the church. They got stuff against them. That's not how a church operates. That's not how the body of Christ thinks. That's not what they do. Either way, if I've done my best, I can return to my worship of God and be in fellowship with him because I, I don't have control over somebody else's heart. The idea is to come before God with a clean heart that seeks peace. Did you seek it? Then you've done all you can do. Being in the presence of God means that I have endeavored to value in my character the things that God values, and God values this. He also gives us the advice in verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge, the officer, uh, that you be thrown into prison. Thus I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up every last cent. Now listen to this. He just got through talking about reconciling with a brother before you worship. Now he says, if they're dragging you to court, make friends with them quickly. The idea is to be well disposed with your opponent, to gain a kindly supportive feeling, a positive attitude in relationship. I don't think he's just talking about ending up in the courthouse downtown here or in Topeka or some other place where you have to go to court. I don't think that's what it's all about, although it's very good advice. And I've told people, you know, getting sued, what can you do to make this go away? What can you do to take care of the anger this person has if they're suing you? And let's work at that. But this is Jesus. Who is the head of the highest court in the universe? It is God. It is Jesus. And on life's way, I want to make friends with Jesus. I don't want him to be an opponent of mine. Because I will be thrown in a place where I can't get out until I pay every last cent. I have nothing to pay with if I'm in hell. I will never get out. I want to make friends with Jesus the way Jesus wants me to right now in this life. When you face Jesus, when you die, will he be a judge who condemns you to hell or will he be a judge who says, hey, I've looked it over, all the books, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. That's what the judge can say. The judge can acquit. The judge can say, I have nothing against this person. That's why the Bible says for Christians in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. But if you're not with Christ Jesus, if you didn't make peace with him during your life, uh, you're headed for a debt that you cannot pay. So we are to, with God's help, make friends with, of opponents. Now, God will help you make friends with him, too. God may soften the heart of a, of a physical enemy as well. And remember the spiritual teaching here. God made a way for us to be his friends. Without him, we wouldn't be able to be his friends. God may not always work out uh, in the heart of your opponent here on earth what you want, but again, we must live by faith and we must put out the effort. God is a reconciler, and so we must emulate him as well. I've told you about my dad before as a, a finance manager. Uh, that was a lot of our life, uh, with dad working there for his whole life. And so we know a lot about that. I do know this. Dad said, if a farmer would just be honest with me and tell me he doesn't have the money to pay... I would work with him. I would work a way out of it. 
one guy I told you wouldn't, wouldn't pay him all the time, and Dad went out to get the money, and he said, well, come here and look at my operations. So Dad did for two and a half hours, and the guy liked my dad. So he wrote him out a check, what he owed him for that month, and handed it to him, and then he would never send a check in. It made Dad come out every month because he liked Dad so much, he wanted to spend some time with him, and he always had the check on the dash ready to go. That's how he stayed out of trouble. Not everybody stayed out of trouble that way. I helped my dad repossess people's equipment when I was in high school. That's no fun. And uh, we had somebody, we had to get a court order uh, to get a tractor left in Colby, Kansas, or outside of Colby, and the guy was so upset that he drained all the diesel out of it. So there we are in the middle of nowhere trying to get a tractor that has no diesel. Now we gotta go buy a diesel can and, and put some diesel in, drive back out there and put it in, then drive as far as we could, put more diesel in it. It took us all day to repossess that. And then the guy showed up at the auction where we sell it uh, and try to make up for what he owes, Massey Ferguson. I was hired by Massey to protect their bid. The guy owed $12,000 on this four-wheel drive tractor and couldn't come up with it. And so I ran it up to 1200 the dealer bought it for more, and so what we call the deficiency balance was taken care of. If it's not taken care of, if that guy hadn't got past that 12000 and Massey Credit bought it back, whatever he owed from what was paid for the tractor, they would sue him for. So now they take your tractor, then they're going to sue you for that. There have been certain cases that are huge, some people have done some jail time for that. Now, what am I trying to illustrate, all right? I'm trying to illustrate, and my dad was a nice guy, okay? <laughs> but he would take your stuff if he had to. That's what he was paid to do. But if you would be honest with him, he would work with you, and he would help you keep your equipment. The truth is, Massey didn't want that stuff back, and they would work with you. They worked with hundreds of people. And God's goal is not to condemn you to hell. He's wanting to work with you. Now, my dad never once that I know of, like with that guy, said, look, you know, I like you so much. You just keep the check this month and let, let my wife, Joan, and I will write a check out for your payment this month because we love you. No, he still had to pay. With God, God said, you owe more than you could ever pay. You have no, no way to pay. None but my son signed a check, if you will, in blood, and you can be free. He paid your debt. It's better to work things out rather than have your equipment possessed or get sued for the amount you still owe the creditors when they sell it, and you pay a deficiency balance. If you make it right with God, there is no deficiency balance. People think there is. They think I've got to work my way into heaven and be good. That would mean you had a deficiency balance. You don't with God. It's free and clear. Well, there's a spiritual side then to all of this in verse 26. If you don't make friendship with Jesus along the road of this life, you will not escape the punishment from Jesus. There are practical issues here on two fronts. One is how to deal with a person who has been wronged by you, or you wronged. The other is how to deal with God's judgment on us before it's too late. At a person's judgment after this life, there will not be any get-out-of-hell-free cards that are issued by God on that day. You must be born again before that day arrives. A wise person sees the issue and takes action. The foolish person does not see and suffers for it. So there's a couple things we want to learn from this, along with what we've already talked about. Number one, we need to do what we can do to maintain fellowship with others. God expects that of us. 
on a higher level than what the world does. Uh, I've listened to how the world call each other names and the things they say about each other, and they use words we would never, would never utter. Well, we might call somebody a fool. We want to make sure that there is justification and we're in the right and doing it with the right heart before we ever do that because God did that and it can be done. But it's not something we look forward to. Number two, worship is not acceptable to God when there is sin between brothers or sisters and ourselves. Thirdly, damaging others damages our personal relationship with God. We need to remember that. You can do a lot of damage to another person way before you murder them, and God's concerned about that. And so our advice is, number four, stay out of trouble with the court. And by that I mean the heavenly court especially. You know, these things can be done with the help of the Spirit of God. Let's be the kind of people who are very careful about how we treat others who all bear the image of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would imagine that most of us are guilty of uh, some of these things that we've talked about this morning. Maybe we have murdered somebody in our heart, called people fools and meant it in a, in a way that was uh, very demeaning and, and mean and angry. I ask that you would help us to think about what you have laid down for us when you said, but I say to you, there's more to this than meets the eye. Next, next week, we'll deal with what he says. You've heard the ancients say that you will not commit adultery, and then he has some other things that are happening way before then that he wants us to take care of. So I pray that you would bring us together again next week and learn what those things are. It doesn't do us any good to have the head knowledge, Father, if we don't put it into practice. I pray that our heart's desire were to put in these, these things into practice, and then I know that you will lend us the power of heaven to get that done. I just want to thank you and praise you for our day together, and I want to thank you, Father, for uh, using us and our ministry here to heal marriages when people uh, say uh, terrible things about each other, and then because of your grace, mercy, and your power, they fall in love all over. I just ask that you would continue to help us in our ministry as a church, and that you would guide us in the things that we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you'd stand, please. We're going to close out by singing Higher Ground. It's hymn number 399. We'll do one and four. Pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand. My faith on heaven's table land, higher plane that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. I want to scale the utmost high and catch a gleam of glory bright. But still I'll pray till heaven I found. 
Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Lift me up and let me stand. My faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you uh, for your great love for us. And uh, Lord, may we be in a right relationship with you and may we be in a right relationship with those around us. Uh, we just thank you, Father, for your word and for what it teaches us. In Jesus' name, amen.